Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. The governor and legislative Democrats have reached a deal on a fix to the $1 billion budget hole. They're looking for a vote on it today. Legislative Republicans might be standing in the way. Meanwhile, in what has become a standard operating procedure at the Capitol, dozens of other important, interesting, and controversial bills are awaiting a mad last-second dash to the finish line. This flurry of budget activity comes amidst a squall of stories about high-wealth residents readying to pack up and leave states like Connecticut and New Jersey for the warm, income-tax-free temperatures of Florida. We will consider whether out-migration from the Northeast is happening at a rate faster than rising sea levels on the Florida waterfront. It's The Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Joining us as always is Colin McEnroe. He's the host of The Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Hi, Colin. Good morning, Mr. Dankowski. Also with us, uh, fresh off uh, a long night at the Capitol, Mark Pazniokas, Capitol Bureau Chief for the Connecticut Mirror. Thanks for coming in, Paz. I bring you greetings from your state legislature. Oh, we can't wait to hear what they had to say. And Suzanne Bates is here. She's Director of Policy at the Yankee Institute for Public Policy. Hi there, Suzanne. Good morning. So let's start not at the state capitol, though. Let's start in Indiana, a place where we usually don't start our program. The Indiana primary is over. Bernie Sanders has picked up a few more delegates, maybe too little too late. And Ted Cruz has dropped out of the race. I've said that I would continue on as long as there was a viable path to victory. Tonight, I'm sorry to say, it appears that path has been foreclosed. Barack Obama at the uh, at the the thing on Saturday Night Con has nothing on the timing of Ted Cruz mm-hmm. in that little speech. Um, so first of all, before we get to the big news about Donald Trump and before we get to Bernie Sanders, Ted Cruz dropping out of the race. What 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 do you think? Did you expect that happening after he formed this um, unbeatable partnership with Carly Fiorina within the last week? Well, you know, I mean, it is sort of an interesting thing. I mean, he actually had a very well-run campaign, as campaigns go, right? I mean, everybody agrees it was a professionally run campaign, well-organized, stuff like that. Um, and, and for him to lose, and lose pretty lopsidedly in Indiana, you know, to me the surprise is that what is any Republican, any mainstream Republican, to make of that, uh, including the fact that you know, Indiana has become sort of a placeholder for the notion of a certain kind of social conservatism and particularly a, a rebuking of certain kinds of, of gay marriage mandates and stuff like that. So this is a place where Ted Cruz would be running uh, with the wind uh, of what the state's known for. So, I mean, every time Donald Trump has a victory, there's some kind of rebu- rebuke of mainstream politics. And I, I think that's what you saw again last night. Ted Cruz should do really well in Indiana if we lived in a world that made any sense, but we don't. We don't live in a world that makes any sense, clearly. And so what does this mean then for Donald Trump? I mean, the story of the last couple of weeks has been, you know, are are we going to see some sort of a contested convention? We still have John Kasich in this race. I mean, are, are we now looking at uh, presidential nominee Donald Trump. Yes. And, and yes, and that's about it. Yes. I mean, I, I don't see how uh, it could be otherwise. Uh, I'm sure John Kasich is holding his position there just in case, just in case something 
uh, absolutely unforese- unforeseeable happens. But but the likelihood that Cleveland, I mean, the good news is Cleveland will not be ravaged you know, by by hordes of discontented <laughs> Trump partisans. That's not going to happen. But no, I don't see how the Trump, how the, he is now the presumptive nominee. He is now what he said he was uh, a week or so ago. He absolutely has this. And I guess the thing that I would say, and as Suzanne may have uh, more poignant things to say about this, is, I mean, this, whatever this is, and God knows what this is, but whatever it is, it's such an enormous sea change over the last 25 years of Republican politics. If, if you start that clock running at Bush 41 and go from Bush 41 to Dole, from Dole to Bush 43, from Bush 43 uh, to, to McCain, to Romney, okay, you can see some ideological slight outliers. McCain's a little bit more of an independent thinker maybe than the rest of them, and Bush 43's administration had a kind of militarism in its foreign policy that maybe isn't quite echoed by by everybody else's, including his own father's. Um, but still, there's a recognizable brand there, right? You could you could pick two or three bedrock principles and say, you know, to one one degree or another, they all trumpet those ideas, you know. And and this is not going to be the case now. You know, this is simply not going to be the case. This is somebody really, really different. So, you know, if Reagan was the last big break with the past, I mean, Trump is either this weird aberration who's going to go away and you'll never see anything like it again, or we've entered into some strange new era. What era have we entered into, Suzanne? I think I what I see from a Trump candidacy is the reaction to people's fears. You know, I mean, I think that... Um, people are afraid of some of the anarchy they see in the world. They're afraid of terrorism. They're afraid of, you know, the people feel like there's lawlessness when it comes to immigration and the border. And so they're looking to someone who's more authoritarian. I really think that Trump answers that sort of fear factor for a lot of people. So so where do all the never Trumpers, uh, who the people you know, many Connecticut Republicans, where do they go now? What do they do now? Do they sit out in November? They sit out or they look for a third can- third party candidate. Um, you know, a friend of mine who was a never Trump, you know, outspoken never Trump person. He last night was uh, tweeting about Gary Johnson, who's the libertarian presidential candidate. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, it, I think a lot of people are concerned because, you know, they, they have principles and they feel like Trump, it, you know, goes against those principles. So they're looking for another another avenue and they don't like Hillary. So where do they go? I think they have not only have principles. They have their own political futures at stake, too. And it's why I think uh, that Johnson is a less likely alternative than the other thing that's being talked about, obviously, is in the senator from Nebraska is one of the people who's being mentioned. Is there is there some way to organize something so that if you have a down ticket race, you know, if you have a U.S. Senate seat or a U.S. House seat at stake and you don't think you can run under the sequined banner of Donald Trump. I'm stealing that line from somebody else. You know, if you don't think that you can run successfully under those circumstances, would it make sense for Republicans of a certain type with a certain kind uh, of, of bet on the line to to run in a different way and to run with somebody else, even if the, the top ticket was sort of a losing cause? I, I would have written that as gold leaf banner, but that's just me. Paz? The, the New York Times had a sidebar this morning that I'm sure that they had been thinking about for waiting for this moment. And it was <laughs> and it was about the Republicans who are just repulsed by this and and will never vote for him. And I quickly scanned it this morning and I the the, the one bit of the one observation I would make is I did not see the name of a single Republican whose name will appear on a ballot somewhere. Mm-hmm. So as we talk about the Republican Party and Republican officials distancing themselves from Donald Trump 
I think you have to put them in two categories. You know, one, the people who will actually be on a ballot somewhere, and you see this in Connecticut, the people who were very free with their criticism of Donald Trump earlier in the year, you know, when Trump would talk about women, when Trump would talk about Muslims, when he would talk about uh, Mexican rapists and all the, you know, the long litany of things. Now, you know, you see some of them like Themis Claritus, the House Minority Leader, say, well, you know, but boy, he really speaks his mind. I mean, these are people who are linked to him on a ballot. So the prayer for them is he brings out newer voters who will help them. But it, and it's not just it, it's not just newer voters who might be helped. It's not just the fact that he's now linked to them, whether or not they like it. But, Suzanne, there, there is something to the fact that as much as there may be a never Trump a thread running through the Republican Party. There's, a, a, a th- I think, a much stronger never again Clinton thread running through the Republican Party. And I, I guess I just wonder if now we will see a few months of that. Of The fact is that Donald Trump is now the placeholder for any Republican fears that another Clinton might enter the White House. I would say that's what you're going to get is a bunch of Republicans, the never Trump and the never Clinton, who are just downright depressed this morning. Um, You know, people are really upset over this. They feel like where do they turn, you know, when they really have two places they don't want to go. I mean, it's it's strong on both sides. And quite frankly, I think Trump is now the country's problem. He's not just Republicans problem. You're starting to see. (laughs) Right. I mean, you're you're starting to see polls that are. Um, showing Clinton and Trump closer together. I mean, this is something what what does a, pre- a, cl- a Trump presidency look like? That's something everyone has to grapple with. I have some important birthday news. Uh, Anthony Kennedy turns 80 in July. Stephen Breyer turns 78 in August. Ruth Bader Ginsburg already is 83. On the left and on the right, not everybody, but there will be a certain degree of folks who will say, okay, we have to keep our eye on the fact that uh, the last few presidents, at least the ones who served two terms, all get to name two people to the Supreme Court. And yes, folks, it does make a difference. D- d- doesn't just a tiny part of you, though, Colin, want to see what Donald Trump would come up with as a Supreme Court nominee? I mean, just it I, would be I, interesting, if nothing else. I think I'm going to nominate Judge Judy. She's great. <laughs> I love, she's terrific. She's huge. I like her. She's very good on television. I'm good on television. I think we'll get along great. Judge Judy, enjoy the Supreme Court. So I, I just I want to kind of yep. double down on some things that have been said here. It would be an enormous mistake for anybody to think that we know how how this general election is going to proceed here. And in some ways, Donald Trump is in a slightly better position than uh, Hillary Clinton in the sense that he has been run against in the most emphatic manner possible, all right? Every possible shot you can imagine, well, not every, but most shots that you can imagine have been, uh, now been taken against Donald Trump. He has been through a ferocious campaign. Every aspect of his person has been impugned. So, you know, he's, he, I'm not saying he's bulletproof as a result of that, but because, in fact, he's, it has been impugned in front of a certain group group of people uh, who are not the general electorate. But Hillary Clinton hasn't really had the same experience. Bernie Sanders has run against her on some select issues. Uh, It hasn't been the kind of um, scarring campaign (laughs) that we've seen over on the Republican side. So general elections are really different. You don't know how, and to Suzanne's point about the polls starting to run close, you know, once you see a bunch of Clinton ads against Trump, and once, once you see a bunch of Trump ads against Clinton, you'll start to see the colorations of this general election race a little bit more accurately than you see them now. We really 
don't know, you know, how this is going to shake out. I couldn't tell you with any confidence that Clinton is going to take Connecticut in the general election. I, I see Trump as a guy who really can run a kind of comparable race to what John Rowland did, where he courts conservative Democrats, he courts uh, huge blocks of unaffiliated voters, and does reasonably well with Republicans. I don't think he's going to be that strong in any of those categories, not as strong as Roland. But I couldn't sit here and tell you that. I mean, that really could happen. And just very quickly, Colin, before we move off this issue to to Suzanne's point again about the polls now running closer, it's not, as they say, for nothing that Bernie Sanders went out and walloped Hillary Clinton in Indiana last night. Now, the fact is, is that Hillary Clinton decided to sort of sit out a lot of that race. And yes, it seems fairly clear that the nomination is hers for the taking. But that also says something about the Hillary Clinton machine as it moves forward, that she continues to get a real fight from Bernie Sanders, who's been written off by, of course, the press and many uh, in the Democratic establishment for quite some time. Sanders has an interesting choice, and, you know, as, as we head towards Philadelphia. He can, he can do things that will make the Democratic ticket a lot stronger, or he can bleed it. Um, and and I, I couldn't tell you – I mean, he keeps talking about it. He's in it to the last primary vote. He's, you know, well, that's fine. But at a certain point, there are things that he can do, a whole range of things that he can do, and things that he can do at the convention that would strengthen Clinton's hand – uh, and, and whether he has the temperament, whether he's in the mood to do it or not, is something I don't profess to know. I, I can't wait to see the post-convention polls because right now we're you're you're trying to imagine how the voters are going to react to some things that haven't happened. I think these conventions are still going to be hugely important, even if they're not contested. You know what will be the image Donald Trump puts forward, and then a week later, how will the Democrats play off of that? Can they generate some excitement around Hillary Clinton as? the first female nominee of, for president of a major Democratic party. And, and meanwhile, Suzette, how excited are all those straw hat wearing Republicans going to be at the, at the convention, all cheering with their Donald Trump signs? What is that going to look like? Well, I really wonder what the Republican <laughs> convention is going to look like. You know, I mean, with the establishment, how he's run so hard against the establishment. Now now he's going to have a meeting, a big giant meeting with where they're all invited. I mean, what's that going to look like? Um, I'm going. Be interesting. Yeah. <laughs> it might be interesting to be at uh, Suzanne Bates, director of policy, the Yankee Institute for Pub- uh, Public Policy. Uh, Mark Pazignoc is the bureau chief for the Connecticut Mirror at the Capitol and Colin McEnroe, the host of the Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Look, we're going to get back and talk about the state budget. Uh, It looks like there's a budget deal between Democrats and the governor. Wonder if Republicans are going to get in the way. We'll be talking about the big budget hole. It's coming up right after this break, where we live on the wheelhouse. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Today it's Wednesday, The Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable with Suzanne Bates from the Yankee Institute for Public Policy, Mark Pazniokas from the Connecticut Mirror, and our own Colin McEnroe. You've got a show this afternoon at 1, Colin. What is on it today? Well, it's going to look like we planned it really well in advance, but we really didn't. About a week and a half ago, we decided we would do a a show about the history of nastiness in American politics Uh, because, in fact, this this campaign seems to people like an outlier. But, in fact, if you go back, go back even to the beginning of the 19th, century. Uh, campaigns were, if anything, worse. The name calling was worse. Uh, it was very typical. There was something called the Connecticut libels where the Federalists in Connecticut said so many horrible things about Thomas Jefferson, including stuff about his sex life and, and uh, his relationship with slaves and stuff like that, that uh, he used the seditious libel laws against, among other things, the Connecticut current. Um, so anyway, it's a long, wonderful history. I'll just quickly parenthetically yeah. say that um, one, of the, one of the people who will be on the show today is 
Collins, uh, columnist Gail Collins from the New York Times, who wrote a book about this a few years ago. I had to pre-interview her for that one segment yesterday. And as we're talking, uh, uh, doing the interview up on CNN, it says Cruz, Trump is a serial philanderer and a narcissist. And <laughs> Boy, it really does look like we planned this it show. Re- it really does look like it. I, I will say I got into a political conversation with somebody on Facebook the other day, and he used Strangely, not somebody I know well, but a very choice, a four-letter word. And later, as I was saying, you probably shouldn't say that. Um, he said, oh, it's not, it's not personal. It's just politics. This is something that comes up over and over again. Right. And this is something you hear that I'm not a big fan of. We've been hearing some of this actually up at the Capitol as well, uh, Paz, over the course of the last couple of days. Uh, Democrats have been fighting with Democrats. Republicans have been fighting with Democrats. It seems, though, now we have a budget deal to fix this $1 billion hole. You were up late last night uh, taking a look at what the Democrats had come up with with Governor Malloy. Do we have a deal that will pass, and will we fix this budget hole? The leaders have a deal. They have presented, uh, presented it to their caucuses, I believe, in the form of a one-page cheat sheet. So the question is, when all the details come out today before it goes to a vote— uh, will they hold their votes together? You know, the likelihood is yes. There are no tax increases in here and in an election year. that I think that tops the list of things people want to avoid. But there are going to be uh, some difficult budget cuts. Um, we had a very odd thing. Um, these commissions that the legislature has created, the Permanent Commission on the Status of Women, um, they maybe have to remove the name, uh, the word permanent from their title, as They've, it turns we've out. We've been talking about that for years. Um, but they're openly lobbying against the legislature's budget, uh, and and the permanent commission um, said this is part of the national war on women, which seems to be a pretty risky lobbying strategy. And, and it's like going after Democratic governor and Democratic legislature, n- narrowing down these six commissions to like two right. commissions and yeah. different groups. Saving yeah, one, some one, amount one, of money. But I think I'm, one I'm, they were calling the women and children one, and, and which will I, I'm sure will be soon known as the women and children first. Yes. Uh, or simply the Titanic Commission. Yes, well, that's exactly. <laughs> but, but holy, how much money does that sort of thing save? I mean, it's not, it's, it's not a lot, but uh, the legislature wanted to kick in. They're also talking about shedding some professional staff from the Program Review and Investigations Committee, which I think most people would acknowledge is an unfortunate thing. Um. But that's where we are. Uh, there's 800-plus million in cuts off of uh, a $20 billion budget that was adopted last June for the second year of the biennium, which begins July. Since taxes are off the table, this is what you got to do. Uh, the governor seems satisfied that there's a minimum of gimmicks in this because he has his eye on this budget as well as uh, – when they come back in January and have to continue working on what are now projected deficits, every dollar that's a real cut in this budget is a dollar you don't have to cut next January. But, but you say a minimum of gimmicks, but there are still some gimmicks in it. I mean, the, the Democrats in their plan, the one that Malloy didn't like so much, had all sorts of deferrals of tax breaks for companies. They, we'll they, give you a bigger one if they you threw don't that out. It now. They threw that they out. They threw that out. So the bigger the bigger gimmicks, if you will, are out. Um, again, we have not gone through this budget in great detail because it does not exist in great detail or it didn't 
as of one o'clock this morning. And that's not a, that's not a terrible surprise. I mean, just from what you know about what we have here, Suzanne. I mean, what do you see? So the Democrats have a deal. We're going to have probably the twenty six hundred job cuts uh, at the state level that the governor was planning, plus some, and we don't know how many more. So we're shedding a lot of state workforce. What do you think? Right. Well, and we're cutting municipal aid. We're cutting, you know, the budget, the budget cuts, transportation funding. It, it seems like it's at least cutting kind of everybody's favorite thing. Right. I mean, and those commissions, it's just a few million dollars, but they were essentially lobbying arms within the legislature. I mean, in, in terms of most important things to keep, they probably weren't on that list. Um, but it's it's an ugly year. And you could feel that at the beginning of the year. You know, I've, since I've been up there this session, I mean, it's everyone's kind of depressed. It's not a good year. They knew going in. And then, you know, as we as in years past, the revenues have eroded over the year. Um, it's gotten worse, not better. And so, I mean, they're they're filling this billion dollar hole. What's that hole going to look like next April? Um, it, it could this same fiscal year, it could be even higher. I was just looking at the consensus revenues the other day. And and this year, April to last year, April, it's that our income tax takes are the same. We're taking in the same amount of income tax, even though we raise taxes. Some of that has to do with capital gains. But it's also, you know, we'll talk more about out-migration later. But I think that's also, you know, part of the issue here. We have some some real problems in the state. So much of what's being done here, and it's hard to talk about it specifically in the absence of an actual budget bill. And also, uh, unlike past, I haven't been going up there. Although Suzanne and I, we're going to do this horrible thing. And, and the press corps, we always get dirty looks. Uh, those of us who kind of parachute in on the last night after these four people have been sitting up here on the fr- firing lines for, for months on end. But um, – you know, I think so much of what's being done, too, has a political calculation to it. Um, ultimate, and the irony is that the Democrats in power don't want to lose a lot of General Assembly elections uh, in November over their bad budget. And the way that they're going to try to avoid doing that, as Paz said, is not having any tax increases in it. Uh, that still leaves them with a really bad budget. And, and I, I wonder whether Republicans can campaign against this budget. It involves getting the average voter to understand a little bit more of the details um, and, and it, it involves the Republicans creating a political frame around those details. Like, I don't, I'm not quite sure exactly what the argument is that they would make. Uh, but I think we all agree it's a bad budget. It's a bad process. It might be the best budget they could get out of the kind of process that they have. Um, but you do sort of wonder how this filters down to November. How does the average citizen even understand or process any of this? Unfortunately, the average citizen tends to mainly look at his or her tax bill. Half the Republican argument – is made, and that's look. There's been chaos. Um, the state, they they talked last night about making structural cuts, but they really have not come out and said, "Okay, people of Connecticut, these are your core government functions, and these are important things that we wish we could fund, but we are putting you on notice that we are no longer doing that." I mean that that statement has not come. Nobody has said to the parents of intellectually disabled people definitively, once your kid goes past the age of 21, once your kid is beyond the reach of public schools, we are telling you you're on your own. Nobody wants to say that. They're edging that way. They're hinting at that. These are the hard things they're trying to avoid. So the Republicans so far, what they have going for them is to say, look, the Democrats have been unable to tame this beast. You know, they they still haven't figured out what are the stable revenue sources. They have not been able to attack spending 
in a in a way that really sheds basic things. I mean, part of what they did yesterday, they're they're cutting a whole bunch of things across the board, which is the it's not easy, but it's easier than telling people you're on your own. So so that's half the the Republican message. The question is, what will they frame going forward about this is what we will do differently? Well, let's actually listen. And this is yesterday. This is House Minority Leader Themis Claritas talking a bit about uh, some of the components that we were just talking about around these budget negotiations. We're still in very dire deficits. We have no plan for the future. That's why we in the House and Senate Republicans found it very important to not only fix this fiscal year, but to come up with a plan, a five-year plan, that will show the state where we will go if we can run it. Because clearly the people that are running it have dropped the ball and have not done what they needed to do, and they've shirked their responsibility. And it's really a shame, but the people of the state of Connecticut need to be concerned about that. Suzanne, is there a a definitive five-year plan coming out of the Republicans? (laughs) Well, they I mean, I think they got some praise this year for the budget that they released. And I think rightfully so. Um, You know, they could have just let the mess sit on the Democrats, you know, because quite frankly, and I think this is the second half of their message. This is a mess of the Democrats making. They've been in power, you know, and they've controlled everything now across the board for seven years. How's it looking? You know, and and it's a mess. And so, you know, the the Republicans don't have to own this mess. The Democrats do. So what does that look like in, in the election? But, but one of the things I don't want to get get to something you've been writing about. And we've talked with you before about state worker pensions and some of the, the high pensions. If you're talking about things that Republicans might run on in November. Right. It's just these sorts of outlandish numbers that you've been talking about. But, you know, to be fair, those things didn't get stuck on by Democrats. They got stuck on by Republicans and Democrats over the course of the last 30 or 40 years. I mean, these are things that have been structurally built into the Connecticut budget that that everyone has a little bit of of blame here. I guess you could say there were some Republican governors that let those things happen, but they were dealing in some cases with super majorities in the legislature. Um, So I think, you know, that you're talking about the you know, we released pension data this week and and it shows that the top public pension is almost three hundred thousand dollars. Um, you know, and, and, and when people see that, they get really angry. You know, we now have almost 900 state employee retirees who who make six figure pensions. And I think that's frustrating for people. You know, when you're asking them to invest in your state government through with their tax dollars, you know, and then you're showing that you're mismanaging those tax dollars. I think that is frustrating for people. I'm, and, you know, yes, some Republican governors maybe. But so the union leadership as well, right? They were there in the room underfunding these pensions as much as anybody else. And so there's lots of blame to go around. Well, one thing quickly before, before we t- get some more thoughts on this, though, is what is the number? I mean, if, we're, if we were trying to fix it, what's a cap? I mean, what's the cap on a state worker pension so that instead of just saying $100,000 is a lot and that lights up the room, well, what's a reasonable number for a state worker pension? I'd like to, ca- I'd like to cap it at the median income. Like so right now our median income is about 68,000 a year. I think a public pension over your median income, so over what your median er- worker is making year after year, I think that's a fair number. Um, you know, and then be- anyone who's making more money than that who could earn a-, a higher pension than that, let them invest in a 401k like everybody else. You know, you could even do a state match at that point. But I think, you know, you need to there needs to be a hard cap. Um I'm already in so much trouble with state workers. Um so uh, I have to <laughs> 
<laughs> I guess I'll just get in more trouble. Although I do want to say one thing. One thing that's in Suzanne's uh, and Yankee uh, Institute's report that's an important thing to understand in all of this is that the um, the mean pension, the average pension, uh, is uh, $34,000. The median pension is about $30,000. So, I mean, first of all, that tells you something right there. When the mean is higher than the median, that means they're skewing, right? They're skewing towards the top. So the fact that there's a smaller group of pensions that are very, very high uh, that are pulling the, the average away from the median. I, I'm not really good at statistics, but I think that's basically what you see if you see that kind of disparity. So there's a, there's a smaller group of pensions that, that are a big problem. Pensions themselves, if that, that's the you know, median pension, pension is 30 grand, the average is 34, it means a lot of state workers don't get really big pensions. So our, the, the problems we really need to look at are pension padding. Uh, and yeah, these insanely high pensions. I, I don't know whether 68 grand is the right number. Certainly in terms of one of your other proposals is stopping cost of living adjustments at, at some ceiling. That to me also seems kind of reasonable. I mean, no matter what you do with any of this stuff, as you know, you will end up in court. You know, this is not going to get decided at the, on the basis of statute or gubernatorial fiat. Uh, you'll wind up in court. But, you know, I mean... I don't see how in the climate that we have right now with the kinds of horror shows that go on at the end of every legislative session. I mean, last legislative session, people were depressed, too, because the budget you know, was such a grisly process. I don't see how you don't put a lot of solutions, a lot of ideas on the table. And, and that's one of them. And one of the things they were talking about last night, and they're starting with non-union management people. Of They are talking about capping pensions and things like that. But to your point about the cost of living increases, you know, Suzanne's report men- mentions this UConn professor um, whose pension is now $300,000. Well, just so happened, I'm the one who introduced that professor and his pension to the world in February of 2010. <laughs> and back then, his pension was $259,000. So his pension has gone up 40 grand since 2010 in a cost of living increase. Now, these are the outliers. There have been pension improvements under Governor Rell and under Governor Malloy about making people work longer. Um, the multipliers are not as great. Um, you know, tier one, which is the rich, rich, rich pensions, which is the, pro- the real financial problem Connecticut has now because that is unfunded. That was an incredibly rich system. The benefits are – there has been this pressure to make the benefits more affordable, but there still are these outliers. You know, when I did that story in 2010, the previous year, oh, there were 110 state employees who retired in 2009 with pensions of at least $100,000. Um, and there had been an early retirement incentive there, so that, that boosted the figure you know, probably by a, a third. And they were led by this UConn professor whose pension that year was – Two fifty nine eight hundred, and I remember my wife because I was, I had all this stuff on a spreadsheet, and I said, "Oh, this guy's pension is going to be twenty something thousand dollars a month." And my wife said, "No, you're, you're reading that wrong." <laughs> I said, "No, it's sure a month." Enough. Okay, so and that that is one that is one piece of it. And again, later on in the program, we're going to talk more about this notion of out migration and whether or not high taxes in Connecticut and uncertainty of the types that we're talking about are forcing people out. But Suzanne, look, when I had the governor in most recently, I said, um. You know, Mark's colleague, Keith Vanoff, has done all the numbers just as, as, as we all have. And we've looked at this and there's almost no chance that we solve this budget crisis with the sort of cuts that we're talking about, long term structural cuts. Um, as Colin said, going back and looking at 
real pension reform, that's going into court. We're going to have to have some sort of mix. I mean, we're going to have to raise taxes or we're going to raise taxes, even if we don't have to raise taxes. Isn't now a time to have a conversation about the reality of the fact that a state like Connecticut is going to have to raise some revenues and make big structural changes at the same time? Because we cannot literally we cannot do one without the other at this point. So I, so getting back to those consensus revenue reports, we're raising taxes and we're not seeing revenues increase. Yes. On the income side. That's true. So, I mean, I feel like we're kind of on that flip side where you're raising taxes and you're, and you're getting declining returns. It's going to be very difficult. Where do you raise taxes? People, I mean, the trust level among people, especially these high net worth people, is so low for state government. I mean, if the kind of structural reforms they would have to make to convince people they were serious about it. Do they have the political will to do it? I've been trying to find a moderate Democrat. If there's one out there, talk to me, who is willing to take on pension reform on Craigslist. You can in a meaningful that. way. I will put an ad out. I am trying to find people who are willing to take on pension reform in a meaningful way because, you know, Governor Moy said he, he did enough in 2011. He didn't. More needs to happen. Um, but but it's been so hard because the labor movement is very strong among Democrats, and it's very difficult to convince, uh, you know, even a moderate Democrat to to go against that power. I, I'm actually asking Tucker Ives to to search moderatedemocrat.com and see if that's, <laughs> that's actually a thing, Colin. You swipe left, um, <laughs> and uh, I believe you know, if you look on Tinder, <laughs> you, can, you can find. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, I guess the one thing that I would say about this, I mean, there's so many things to say about it. But one thing that we, I think, probably need to do, you know, remember how we were going to do generally accepted uh, accounting principles? And that was like impossible. Oh, yeah. Forget about that. But I think one nice accounting principle would be whenever we talk about uh, state employee salaries, um, you know, you can go on uh, on Sunlight, which is Suzanne's group's site, and and look at uh, state employee salaries and you can look at pensions, too. But in general, our discourse about this, whenever we talk about a state employee salary, we should probably project out the pension, too. Like, what does this person really cost? You know, and I'm not saying that state employees because I hate you or anything like that. But just simply, it's not simply a case that we're paying you $82,000 a year to do your job. That may be a completely reasonable number to pay you. Your job may be very important. Uh, I'm not suggesting any of those things. But the reality is, what's it going to cost to keep you on the books for your probable lifespan post-retirement? That's the real cost of you. You cost more than $82,000. And 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 I just think, you know, we we don't talk about it that way. We probably need to talk about it though, that way. These are personnel costs that are not, for the most part, mirrored in the private sector. Uh, and and so we've got to understand them better. Well, and we're cutting we're cutting spending. We're cutting services. I mean, last year we cut services and raised taxes by a significant amount. You know, when you're having to do that in times that are for the rest of the nation economically good times or at least relatively good, that is alarming. You know, we should be alarmed by that. And there was some great reporting this week in the Connecticut Mirror about what it's doing to our research at at UConn. I mean, this is affecting our ability to meet the needs of people who are intellectually disabled. Our our state employee costs are it's affecting our ability to to give those services that people need. Marty, Marty Looney last night. Uh, Marty, of course, is the Senate president. Uh, people on the left who th- think taxes should go up on the rich is a matter of economic justice should take heed. Um, Senator Looney talked about the volatility of the tax base, that the higher you go up the income ladder and, and you know, set aside the argument about 
how real is it that people will flee the state strictly because of taxes? Whether or not you believe that's true, it is undeniably true that the more you rely on a smaller and smaller number of people, and in Connecticut, it's about almost a third of the tax base we get from 1% of taxpayers. Um, If a couple of those folks go, if a couple of those folks don't take uh, investment, uh, don't uh, take uh, capital gains and pay taxes on it, it affects the taxes wildly. So Senator Looney last night, when asked about raising taxes on the rich because there are people uh, on the left pressuring him to do so, he pointed out that the last time they did that, they brought in roughly a billion dollars less in income tax revenue than had been projected, and that is one of the root causes of the crisis we have right now. Uh, on this issue, let's just get to Peter in Stanford quickly. Hi, Peter. Go ahead. Uh, yes. Well, there's, uh, you have to look at the forms of income. There's the residential uh, I'm no economist or anything, uh, but uh, you have a residential form of income and you have the industrial form of income. Industry is basically leaving this country. It's been leaving. It's been leaving for 30 years. I live in Stanford, and I remember uh, – I grew up in uh, Greenwich, and I remember Yale Town & Lock. I remember Macklet. I remember Singer. I remember Pitney Bowes, a Clairol. Those are five I can just list off the top of my head. And in Stanford, I'm sure in, in other – you know, Waterbury, Bridgeport, New Haven – Sure. Uh, there have been, uh, you know, companies that have just industrial bases leaving. So, so where are we going to get our tax? Uh, where are we going to get an income stream coming in? Well, I, I'll tell you what, Peter. I thank you for the phone call. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take a break. When we come back, let's talk more about this. Not just industry leaving Connecticut, but also the question of are people going to leave those high tax uh, payers, those top earners that uh, you know make up a lot of the tax base of Connecticut and places like New Jersey. There's been a lot written about that recently. We're going to talk about out migration and also a few of the other bills that may or may not pass in this uh, legislative session. It's coming up next in the wheelhouse where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on tomorrow's show, young and debt-free. It sounds nice, but is it possible? Personal finance experts will offer tips and tricks to young people looking uh, uh, to get out of debt. If you're in your 20s or 30s, we want to hear from you. Lucy Nalpathanchel hosts tomorrow's Where We Live. Hope you can join us for that conversation. Today, it's the Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable. Colin McEnroe from the Colin McEnroe Show. Mark Pazniokas from the Connecticut Mirror. Suzanne Bates from the Yankee Institute for Public Policy. We've heard a familiar story in the Connecticut News recently in an op-ed. A local resident, uh, an Avon resident, recently a retiree, writes about the desire to move somewhere like Florida. He says it's not about taxes early in this piece and then goes on to say it's actually, well, about taxes. This came after a New York Times piece about the same issue but only with a bigger fish, uh, a guy named David Tepper, leaving New Jersey, uh, a guy who's a, a hedge fund manager who has so much money Uh, in his personal wealth that, indeed, it may tip the balance of the New Jersey state budget. Now, yesterday I spoke with Democratic candidate for U.S. Senate in 2006, uh, Ned Lamont, former gubernatorial candidate. He uh, called himself Greenwich's token Democrat. We're going to air a full interview with him next week. But I wanted to share something he said about uh, the Connecticut economy and the out-migration from the state. But it is something we've got to focus on as a state. Unfortunately, uh, some of the guys you may not like the most, you know, hedge funds and the investment companies and uh, the rich guys are very mobile. And when um, a Thomas Petterfee leaves the state and goes to Florida, he takes with him probably $50 million a year in Connecticut state income tax revenue. Yeah, and Petterfee is, is another Greenwich resident, uh, one of these high wealth people. So, Colin, here, here's, here's the thing. And I read this piece in the Hartford Current, and I'm of a couple, a, a couple minds about this. 
One is it seems structurally impossible that we would construct a system when someone of very high wealth could leave and it would actually sink our budget. We'd have to call in a special session just to raise the money necessary to pay uh, for everything with that guy leaving. On the other hand, there's a little bit of a what sounds like a, a whine from some people who are maybe not the hedge fund managers, but who say, you know, I'm being forced to leave and go to Florida. Well, people have been going to Florida for 50, 60 years to enjoy the sunshine and to, you know, play golf. Are we really seeing a crisis in out-migration in Connecticut, or should we be worried about that in the near future? Well, I don't think that there's one answer to that question. And we go back to, I mean, Pat set this up pretty well at the end of the last segment, all right? That, that in fact, um, you know, there is a really small group of people who pay a whole lot of taxes. And you can't ignore that fact. And Ned's saying the same thing, too. I think that maybe the other way to think about this is how, I mean, you may lose some of this generation of hedge fund people because they vote with their feet and there's not that much you can do to make the state more attractive to them. I I think the larger question, and we're going back to the idea of five-year plans and 10-year plans, is how do you build a state that will attract some of the people who will be revenue generators of the future, right? General Electric, for the most part, didn't leave to go to Florida. They left to go to Boston. Um, So if you have good infrastructure, if you have a good education, if you have a, a, a robust cultural environment, if you have some of the things that make life worth living, and we do have some of these things here in Connecticut, but I wouldn't put our transportation infrastructure uh, in that category. If you start to do those kinds of things and then also have a targeted uh, economic development uh, policy that targets in particular smaller companies, startups uh, that might get bigger, um, I mean, to to Peter's previous point, you know, we're not going to make locks here anymore. We're just not. We're going to make encryption codes instead uh, that, you know, if you, if you look at what the areas of growth are uh, and, and, and try to work those, I mean, that's probably better than trying to figure out how to try to keep a hedge fund guy from Greenwich uh, from spending 184 days or whatever the limit is in, in Florida. So, I, I mean, I don't know. There may be ways. Uh, Kevin Sullivan apparently, you know, is at least considering sending them all fruit baskets and stuff like that. But there may be ways to do that. But I think it's better to have a really robust economic strategy. We've got that a little bit. I mean, identifying biosciences and stuff like that is as maybe a growth area. That wasn't as dumb an idea as paying a lot of other companies essentially bribes to stay here. So I don't know. That was a pretty unwieldy answer. Well, I, I, what I, would, I, got. I, I would just suggest to, to Kevin Sullivan, edible arrangements. It's a local yeah. company, economic <laughs> development, Paz. Oh, what's, your, what's your thought? The chocolate-covered <laughs> ones are really good. Um, again, I'll go back to what Marty Looney said. I mean, there is a realization that Connecticut may be at the outer limits of what you can do at the top end. Um, Connecticut's top income tax rate is 6.99%. Connecticut always looks at New Jersey and New York because we don't compete with Florida. We're never going to compete with Florida. But the goal has always been can we keep these people who have reason to be in the Northeast, who are, are centered on Manhattan perhaps, can we keep them on our side of the border? Um, and But – you know, the last time they raised the top rate, it was a different kind of increase. It was dollar one is taxed at that six point nine nine percent, not you know your first hundred thousand are taxed at a lower rate, and up and up it goes. So, um, so again, the left politically is going to have a really hard time pushing for more revenue on the top end because of that volatility issue. Suzanne? Well, and, I mean, to go back to Massachusetts, I mean, they have a flat, what is it, 5% income tax rate, and they have a much healthier looking balance sheet. So I think there were some fiscal reasons, you know, when 
when uh, GE was looking at at Massachusetts, they, they tax investment income though much higher than Connecticut. They does. do. It is a they do. Their capital gains, you know. Yeah. But we also, I mean, to to compare us to New York, we have a much broader base on income, and we tax a much broader base than New York does. So our rates are actually, you know, much closer than than we think they are. Um, I think part of it is, you know, when you talk to people with with high net worth, even these, you know, this guy in Avon. This trust, I think the trust in state government, again, it gets back to, are they managing the money I'm giving them well? You know, I mean, if you're asking a lot of these people and then you show them a state government that is a constant fiscal mess, I think that's a hard ask to make, you know, and, and, you know, stay here. We have a lot of great things. I mean, there's a reason I'm here. You know, there are a lot of great things about Connecticut. But, you know, are we, the, the rhetoric that a lot of these people hear, too, is, you know, fine, leave, get out. That's not healthy. I don't think that's a healthy thing to say to people just because they have some concerns with how things are being run. No, but I don't think that we can overstate the, the point that people have indeed been living, leaving for Florida for a very long time for a lot of other reasons. And, you know, Naples, Florida is right now at Naples, Florida, where the gentleman wants to go. Literally, the, the town managers there, they don't believe climate change is happening. Although if you look at any maps of South Florida, you'll see that Naples, Florida is in trouble. I mean, there's a lot about Florida not to like, too. And I asked the governor about this, Suzanne. I mean, where are people going to go? If they want to go to Florida because they're not going to pay an income tax after having made a pretty good living here in Connecticut and probably sending their kids to pretty damn good schools here as well, I, what do you say? I mean, haven't people been leaving for Florida and South Carolina for years? They have, but the, the tempo has picked up dramatically. So if you look at out-migration data, from, uh, the IRS release, releases this data. It's really interesting. And if you look at like all through the 2000s, early 2000s, 1990s, we were losing about on net or net, a net loss of about $500 million a year. In the years after the 2011 tax increase, we went up to 1.8 billion net loss in taxable income, and and they show you you know what tax bracket people are in, and it was mostly high net worth people that were leaving after th- 2011. 2012, it was like one and a half billion, and then 2013, it was a billion. Um, I mean, we're losing a lot of taxable income. It, the tempo of people leaving has increased dramatically. And very quickly, Scott and Hartford, you have something along these lines. Go ahead. I do, yes. It's not just hedge fund managers and rich people who are leaving. It's also middle-class people because, um, and solid middle-class people who have technology jobs that can work from anywhere. And they are going. I know people that have gone to Florida, Texas, Arizona, Nevada, the mid-Atlantic states, the Midwest. And when they go, they still have their job here. They're just not paying connected state income taxes. And you were very incredulous that people would leave because they thought the quality of life just couldn't be matched anywhere else. We've talked to those people. Part of the quality of life is, gee, how much is left over my paycheck after I'm through paying these really high property taxes? Wait, is Scott, really income is, taxes that seem to be going up and up because you can't address the spending issue. Scott, you make a great point. I want to throw that to Colin McEnroe. Thanks for your call. Yeah, and you know, I think the, the last thing he said is the real, one of the really important parts. I mean, obviously, there's one of the things that's happening right now is that our ability to address property taxes, which I, I do think are the drivers of a lot of the problems and the drivers of a, a lot of uh, the migration that we're seeing, uh, has been hamstrung. I mean, it's going to be a much more targeted form of property tax relief targeted on places like Hartford that, you know, it's just people are just getting killed. But the ability to begin, break that cycle I mean, it's the problem is you can't pull property tax out of the mix, right? Uh, if you try to do something at the state level and you start cutting aid to municipalities, property taxes go up so that they can uh, meet their obligations uh, there. But and it's one of the arguments for for structural reform, and it's one of the arguments for having for somebody having a five year plan. 
Um, Paz, we just have a, have a couple minutes left, and I, I want to ask you, are we going to see a vote on the Second Chance Society proposal that, that Governor Malloy has been sort of waiting on? There's a lot of things in the wings that we haven't really had any time to talk about because of the budget. I don't believe there'll be a vote today um, by the midnight deadline. I do believe um, you will see a one-day special session early next week where there will be some leftover things despite – the claim last night by the leaders that they would try to get everything done today, that appears to be physically impossible to do. Um, <laughs> not only is the governor's second chance proposal an important policy change, it also has a fiscal impact. There, it, there's a savings in there of something like $15, $16 million a year. So that's a, yet another reason to make sure they do that. Are, are there other things like this, things that really are, are important, either the governor or legislative leaders have been pushing for that may not get done today, may have to go to a special session or may just not be voted on at all? Uh, it's a very short list. The, the budget uh, Unlike other years, uh, the, the list of other must-haves is pretty damn small. Uh, I think you may see an effort uh, in special session to put a constitutional amendment question on the ballot about how we uh, sell land. It's a, there's a, a real push at the Capitol to do a constitutional amendment that would make it more difficult uh, for the state to sell land. Uh, it stems from a controversial uh, land swap a few years ago. Beyond that, I, it's going to be a short list. I mean, as as there as is the case every year, you must look at something called the budget implementer. You can tuck all kinds of things in it that didn't make it as a standalone bill during the regular session. That will be the job of the press and and everyone else to check that out once they do that. <laughs> and I'll just read this quote uh, from uh, House Majority Leader Joe Arasimowicz, uh, something he told you, Paz, about the role some of these bills have in the session. He said, anytime we've got negotiations going on, in this particular case, it happens to be the budget, our leverage in part is having bills on the calendar that either agencies or the administration want. It's not a secret. That's how we've always done it here. So, Colin, you just have 30 seconds, but you know, here we are again. We're swapping and trading. We're trying to get really important stuff done. And some really important bills are being used as these chips. Right. So um, back to Suzanne's point, is the state government you're seeing there worth the tax dollars you're being charged there? And so there's a lot of bills that are being considered at the last minute uh, that should have been considered a long time ago. No reason you couldn't pass an opiate bill uh, way back. Uh, Meanwhile, there's bills that won't be considered at all that are are really important. And then there are bills that are going to be passed at the last minute that that never should have been passed. Um, And and, well, we don't have time. But anyway, yeah. But just look for it in the implementer, and we'll be doing that in a future wheelhouse with Colin McEnroe, with Mark Pazdiokas of the Connecticut Mirror, and Suzanne Bates of the Yankee Institute for Public Policy. Continue the conversation online. Go to WNPR.org. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks to Tucker Ives, who produced today's program. Thanks for joining us.